Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. Okay, this episode can be treated as a sequel to our previous episode on isotopes. You can keep listening to this episode even if you didn't listen to part one, but I suggest you go and check it out afterwards. It's a pretty good one too. And like every sequel ever made, I fully expect this episode to be even better than the first. Much like The Godfather and The Hangover series, all great, great sequels. All jokes apart, today we are getting into a very exciting area in geochemistry stable isotopes. We're going to talk a bit about all the different ways that we can use stable isotopes in different areas in geoscience, including oceanography and climate. Today we are in the great hands of Michaela Moore. Michaela is a geologist with a bachelor degrees from Queen's University and is soon starting her continued education in a graduate program in Europe. She's also a talented musician and the creator of the Nice Chats theme song, which I know you all love as much as I do. She's also responsible for the sound engineering of the Nice Chats podcast episodes. So let's find out a bit more about her and her path in geology and get into the use of stable isotopes. Hey, Michaela, welcome to this side of the curtain. <laughs> uh, if there is a fourth wall, we are completely smashing it today. Um, you know, might as well be made of talk. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Vitor. So um, what exactly are you going for uh, in your next steps in, uh, in your education? Um, mostly I'm interested in um, biogeochemical oceanography, so sort of continuing some of the same things I was doing in undergrad, but more so focusing on the ocean rather than just geology overall. As you probably know best than anyone else out there, uh, besides myself and the other producers of Nice Chats, we always start our podcast with a fun game. Um, <laughs> Before we get started, what is your favorite type of rock? Uh, it's got to be sedimentary. <laughs> well, that's what you think. Today, <laughs> oh we're going to take a BuzzFeed quiz <laughs> and use the foolproof algorithm that I have developed to tell once and for all which rock type should actually be your favorite. <laughs> Let's see if you got it right. Oh man, I'm going to get killed if it's metamorphic by my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is the first time I think we have someone actually defending sedimentary rocks in this show. Well, I'm proud to fill that role. <laughs> so, Michaela, first question is, 
What is your favorite dessert? Oh my goodness. And the options are key lime pie, apple crumble, eclair, lava cake, peach cobbler, or s'mores. Oh my gosh. It's going to be so hard not to try to figure out which one goes with the sedimentary rocks. Okay, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with um, apple crumble. Mm-hmm. Apple crumble, nice. You know, I would pick key lime pie, <laughs> and not because I know the answers uh, to the quiz, <laughs> but uh, because Bryant, which I mentioned in the introduction and throughout the whole show, you know, my best friend, <laughs> he makes an awesome key lime pie, and um, he would always make it for uh, for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I would basically end up eating half of it. Oh my gosh, so, I've never tried homemade key lime pie before, but I'd love oh, to. Oh man, so good, so <laughs> good, honestly. Um, okay, question number two. Okay. Pick one world wonder destination. Petra, Jordan, Christ the Redeemer in Brazil, the Taj Mahal in India, Bagan in Myanmar, Lion Rock in Sri Lanka, or Machu Picchu in Peru? You know, I I think I'd have to go with Lion Rock in Sri Lanka. Really? Okay, interesting. Why is that? Well, so I've I've been to um, Christ Redeemer in Brazil, and I've also been to Peru, both of which were beautiful places, but I think I'd want to go somewhere different. So I think, yeah, and I don't know. It just, it seems like the right place to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I also really like uh, Petra. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, the Indiana Jones movie. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and I haven't, I haven't been to Machu Picchu, actually. And, uh, you know, for the people that um, haven't been to Machu Picchu and they are going to take this quiz, <laughs> I think it's really, really hard to choose, uh, you know, another location rather than Machu Picchu. It's true, yeah, it's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Okay, uh, question number three. Pick the best superhuman from these options. Sandman, I mean, the Hulk, Human Torch, Mystique, Nebula, or Mr. Fantastic? Uh, it's got to be Mystique. I love her. <laughs> Mystique, really, yeah. right? I mean, even though Sandman is obviously the sedimentary rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, d- I couldn't do that. I can't go Sandman over Mystique. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, yeah, I can't always be, you know, that conniving. Conu- how do you say, like, um, when, you, when you're, like, you know, hiding something? Oh, like know? conniving? Conniving, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't always be that conniving, you know. Sometimes it's got to be pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mystique is pretty cool, but I think my favorite is Nebula, honestly. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy Me series. too. That would be my second choice. Hmm. Okay, pick the best Taylor Swift song. <laughs> oh my goodness. I knew you were trouble. Everything has changed. We are never getting back together. <laughs> Sparks fly. Shake it off or Dear John. Oh man, um, that's hard. Uh, I'm gonna do. We are never getting back together. Oh, that's good. That's, that's just really you know, it's good. one of those ones you can just scream sing with your friends, and it makes yeah. you happy. <laughs> Honestly, having to pick between um, all of these Taylor Swift songs for me is like having to choose my favorite child. <laughs> um, 
I might have gone with Dear John uh-huh. just because I've recently uh, listened to a podcast where they um, go through Jessica Simpson's book and she describes her relationship with John. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and man, F that guy, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I would pick it. <laughs> so a personal connection now. <laughs> exactly, man. Honestly. All right. Next question is, pick your favorite theme. Mm. Earth evolution, supercontinents, fieldwork, exoplanets, controversial theories, or melt inclusions? Um, Earth evolution. Ah, nice. Mm -hmm. And next question is, how would your friends characterize you? Dependable, adaptable, outgoing, explosive, chill, or warm? Oh man, that's a hard one. Um, definitely not explosive. Let's go with, let's go with chill. Chill. Yeah, that's, that's what I think my friends would pick for me as well. The hard thing about this question is that you have to imagine what other people think of you. I know, you know? yeah, because I, I would say, like, for if it was just me choosing, it would probably be um, adaptable. But I don't, I don't think most people would see me as adaptable. I think, like, the chill one is more fitting. <laughs> I see, yeah. I think dependable would go well for me, too. Yeah. Um, I tend to be very loyal, you know, to my friends. Mm-hmm. All right, so final question is, what's your favorite kind of wine? <laughs> Red, sparkling, rosé, grappa, white, or porto? It's got to be red, yeah. <laughs> red, okay, okay, very nice. To quote David Rose, you know, <laughs> I'm not that into the label, but I really appreciate the wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome quote. I've never heard that uh, before. <laughs> Oh, really? You've, have you never seen uh, Schitt's Creek? Oh, no. My, um, my girlfriend's been trying to get me to watch that for ages, and I haven't Dude. gotten to it yet. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, let's, let's stop this meeting right now, and <laughs> let's get you watching Schitt's Creek. It's awesome. It's so good. It's like one of the best TV shows ever. I, I, I you know, I'm starting to give in, because I don't think I can last much longer without, you know, all the comments I keep getting because I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. All right. So let's find... Oh, oh, man, look at that. You got yes, sedimentary. look at that. <laughs> you got sedimentary rocks. Sedimentary rocks cover about 73% of the Earth's current land surface, and they have also been found in Mars. The study of the sequence of sedimentary rock strata is an important source for understanding of the Earth's history, including paleogeography, paleoclimatology, and the history of life. There you go. Dang, look at and that. And a lovely picture of Kalbari in Western Australia. Beautiful. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great place with some very cool structures. BuzzFeed has spoken, I guess. Oh, man, yeah, there you go. You, I guess you know yourself pretty well. <laughs> Come on, I knew Mikaela would get sedimentary rocks. Our algorithm is foolproof. If you are curious to know which rock is the right choice for you, this quiz is actually available to anyone via BuzzFeed. 
just check out our show notes for the link to the quiz. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to us in our email, nicechats at gmail.com. You can also follow us and message us on our social media pages that are listed also in the show notes. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. Okay, Michaela, so let's get into the good bit, okay? Uh, we chatted with Bryant in a previous episode, Dr. Bryant Ware, my best friend. Uh, we chatted with him about what are isotopes. And, you know, we did touch on the power of stable isotopes a little bit, mm -hmm. but we mainly focused on radiogenic isotopes. Can you remind our audience of what stable isotopes are? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in simplest terms, a stable isotope never decays over time, um, or it does so so slowly that it's unnoticeable. And, and as you know, from the previous episode, um, radioactive isotopes do decay over time. So that's the main difference between the two. Right, cool. And, um, you know, if our listeners uh, remember, an isotope is basically um, a variety of the same element that contains a different number of neutrons and therefore, you know, slightly different masses. So, for example, we mentioned the uranium and lead system uh, in the last episode, and, you know, you have uranium-238 uh, and uranium-237, uh, and then you have lead-208, uh, 207, 206, 204. And in the case of stable isotopes, uh, I can think of carbon-14 and carbon-12, for example. Uh, it's you know, very famous from the carbon-14 applications and things like that. Yeah. And um, what, what kind of processes can we study in geosciences with the use of stable isotopes? Yeah, well, um, I think the most important thing to understand first is and how to characterize stable isotopes as they move through different phases and, and through time, because that's going to help you um, understand these types of processes. So I think, um, first off, you can either consider an isotope to be heavy or you can consider it to be light. And that just refers to um, the mass. So if they have um, more neutrons than protons... Um, it's going to be heavy. And if they have less neutrons than protons, then it's going to be um, light. And those will behave differently. Um, and that can kind of lead to isotope fractionation, which in simple terms is like that separation between the heavy and light isotopes, between the two coexisting phases. And that separation is going to allow for us to, as scientists, track them and help us understand the processes that um, dominate them. Um, and, and essentially that will lead to these elemental cycles that are sort of like biogeochemical pathways. These elements will take through the influence of like a geological or a biological process. And as the isotopes, um, the ones that we, that we can focus on most closely are, are ones like carbon and oxygen. And that's because they do have a, a greater degree of separation between the heavy and the light. Um, and, and that will then lead to fractionation. So one of the, one of the best, um, techniques and, and, and applications for stable isotopes is actually understanding the geologic timescale. Um, 
And so stable isotopes can sort of be used as um, bookmarks for our past since they're preserved in things like sediments and rocks, shells that are even preserved in ice. Um, and they can help us confine time to, you know, different areas, epochs, periods, what have you. And that'll enable us to, to better study the geologic time scale because we can then start restricting these periods of time and then um, put a, a set of characteristics and, and name them, essentially. And yeah, then that carries um, forward. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, sure. but um, that's actually very interesting because uh, we're, we have a, an upcoming episode on... Uh, Paleo magnetism. Oh, cool! And you know they they actually use paleomagnetism in a very similar way, where they track the variation of the magnetic pole through time and use that as an indirect dating method. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know you can also do that with uh, isotopic variations over time, right? Yeah, definitely. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, and that um, is one of the the greatest applications for them in the context of a paleo environmental study or in predicting climate change, because you can use those differences to um, to tell us about temperatures, nutrients, salinity, um, and other characteristics of past environments, specifically in the ocean. Um, and mm -hmm. then you can also better understand those isotopes patterns um, in, in the atmosphere um, and between the ocean and the terrain. And then you can actually understand how the two are, are so closely connected and, and start to build this comprehensive picture of past environments. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. So um, most of our studies, they investigate the different behaviors between you know, two isotopes of different masses. But it's also interesting that, uh, you know, it has been observed for sulfur and oxygen that there is also something called mass-independent fractionation. Now, I'm not going to get into this process too deep because I think that it could actually be an entire different episode. Yeah. But it, I just wanted to point to the listeners that there is this thing called mass-independent fractionation which basically means that these um, isotopes fractionate and it isn't the mass that controls their fractionation, which is, which is quite striking and, uh, and an unusual behavior, let's say, for stable isotopes. In the case of sulfur, for example, this uh, behavior is only observed during the Archean. Uh, so there's probably a connection with the evolution of the atmosphere that made that this process is no longer observed um, currently. And the other thing that is interesting too is that it is still very, very debatable, the mechanism behind the fractionation of sulfur. Mm -hmm. So, you know, keep your ears to the ground. We'll, we'll probably talk about this in a future episode. And, uh, you know, just be sure to keep listening to, to nice chats and keep following us on uh, the social medias. And we'll let you know when, uh, when we talk about mass-independent fractionation. <laughs> but, uh, but to Michaela, getting back here to our, um, to our subject of today, um, in your case in specific, you use stable isotopes in oceanographic and climate studies, right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain quickly to me what exactly 
you know, what does it mean, oceanographic and climate studies? For sure. Um, so in the context of isotopes, um, paleoceanography is the study of the oceans and the geologic past. Um, and that's with regards to everything from circulation to chemistry to biology and geology. Um, and then paleoclimatology is the study of the climate and the geologic past. And, and as I said, those are both very intimately linked um, and one has great influence over the other. So and they didn't used to be they didn't used to be um, so closely connected. And, and it's really thanks to something like a stable isotope that we can now um, better understand how they work with each other through time. Stable isotopes can be used, um, as I mentioned, to analyze the specifics of the past environments um, and, and the climate, like temperatures and nutrient levels in the water and specific chemistry of the ocean waters and so on. Um, and that can be done from analyzing isotopes collected from ocean sediment cores, from ice cores, or even from fossilized organisms that once lived in the oceans that existed millions of years ago. Man, that's all very, very cool, actually. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, very interesting how appealing these like paleo, um, I don't know, paleologic kind of studies are to us. You know, it's uh, it's very easy to to get excited about this kind of study of the evolution of life in the past, uh, yeah. in the geological past. Yeah, that's why I love it, because it, it's just such a wonderful way to tell a story. And I think that's a lot of what geology is, is, is storytelling. Um, and to be able to do that in the context of millions to billions of years is, is I just think that's so amazing. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you there. Um, just uh, can you give me an example of an isotopic system that you yourself used consistently in recent years? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I worked most closely with oxygen um, and carbon stable isotopes. Um, okay. And I guess, yeah, I mean, oxygen is a little bit easier to understand just because the cycle is a bit easier to understand. Um, and they're actually best known for recording seasonal variation or or temperature in, in the ocean water. Um, so, so basically, there are three stable oxygen isotopes. That's oxygen-16, oxygen-17, and oxygen-18. Um, and oxygen-16 is the most abundant stable isotopes. Um, so... The atmosphere isn't composed of of every stable isotope equally, and, and I think oxygen sixteen is something like ninety percent compared to the other two, which are are far less abundant. Yeah, wow. Um, and and typically the ratio of oxygen sixteen to oxygen eighteen is most um, often used to interpret the paleoclimate. Um, and the ratio of one to the other is what supplies a value that, that we can then convert into um, a unit that we can understand, like temperature, through um, mathematical formulas. Um, and so what happens in this, in this cycle of oxygen isotopes is that water molecules containing um, lighter isotopes like oxygen-16, so because of the number of neutrons that oxygen-16 has, it, it is lighter. Um, and that means it's slightly more likely to evaporate out of um, bodies of water like the ocean. And that means it's also more likely to precipitate. So um, the result is that fresh water and um, polar ice contains less of the heavy isotope, which is oxygen-18, than air or seawater does. 
And, and what that means is, is that it allows us for an analysis of temperature patterns via ice cores, because um, the lower values of oxygen 18, the lower the values um, of oxygen 18 in an ice core, that means the further away from the equator it was formed, right? Because you have these, mm-hmm. um, as, we, as we know, um, the, the water cycle that involves evaporation, precipitation, the longer that it has time to, to work through that cycle as it moves away from the equator according to air patterns um, and airflow, um, that depletes O18 as it moves away. So um, overall, that means that um, the warmer the global climate, um, the, the further away the ice caps were. And, and we can tell this because it has um, more oxygen 18 than oxygen 16, because it's had more time to evaporate, evaporate out. Um, and then the other way that you can understand these ratios is through fossils like benthic foraminifers, and, and those guys are the main um, resource for paleoclimatology. Um, and you can measure that ratio through chemical analysis, where high values will reflect cold temperatures and low values will reflect warm temperatures. Okay. Um, it's funny because I think I just had a flashback um, to when I... <laughs> went to the Ecole Nationale Supérieure de Géologie in France <laughs> um, because so basically in my home university in Brazil, you know, we only study very old rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of, of uh, importance given to, uh, you know, stable isotopes in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting in the, in the classroom in France maybe a week after I got there. And then these guys just hammering down all of these concepts in me. <laughs> and to everyone else there was second nature, you know. Yeah. But to me, not only was a, a huge uh, complication understanding everything, <laughs> but it was in French. And that was basically my first experience with, the, you know, with native speakers. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's totally yeah. horrible. Yeah. I think that, you know, if I had uh, listened to this episode before I went over, that would have made my life much easier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's really easy to make something like stable isotopes sound really complicated. And it is to a certain extent, but I think it's one of those things that like once you understand it, you understand it, you know, it doesn't yeah. really go away. But yeah, it yeah. takes a long time for it to sink in at first. And if mm. you're doing it in French, mm-hmm. that's... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> also because you know you're always working with deltas and uh, and things like that yeah. so there are always equations in the papers and it's right. uh, yeah it's just a bit a bit of a uh it's it's a bit um man I I lost the word now um intimidating it's a bit intimidating It is. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to just emphasize to our listeners that might not be so familiar with geological studies, uh, you know, uh, Michaela was mentioning ratios a lot, and uh, and she did touch on it a little bit. I'm just like you know making a a stronger point mm-hmm. that um, the reason why we study ratios instead of absolute uh, concentrations in in some instances. Is that you know, like she she said, you know, we have a an overwhelming majority of a certain uh, isotope in comparison to another one. So the differences 
that they're going to have in absolute concentration are sometimes going to be imperceivable. You know, if you have 97% of something uh, versus 96% of something, that might not seem very significant. However, when you use a ratio, you're comparing the relative abundance. So, for example, if you compare 90% of something against 1% of something else, that's a 90 to 1 ratio, right? However, if you have 92% to 2, now all of a sudden it's a 92 to 2. So that means what? 46, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, 46. No. What is it? 46. Yeah. yeah? Okay. So that's a, that's a 46 now, you know? So before you had 90, now you have 46. So it's a huge difference all of a sudden. So something that might seem not that important actually carries a lot of importance and can help us understand better the processes. And that's why so often in geology and especially in geochemistry, uh, ratios are more important than uh, relative abundances. Yeah, glad you brought that up. That makes it more clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like to, you know, hammer down these like basic concepts <laughs> because I think that's what makes our show approachable to uh, basic audiences. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've been getting a lot of feedback from non-experts that have started listening to the show. So I'm really trying to cater a little bit more to them. Like, for example, in, the, in one of the last episodes, uh, we had that game with Angus, which was my favorite game. It was so much fun. It was really because good. Because there was, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it was like the quiz we did today. You know, you're always trying to get like, okay, what is the significance of this uh, of this choice in relation to what the final result will be. Yeah. But, uh, but non-experts are really going to struggle with that one, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> anyway, this one is a bit more approachable, the BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> That's so true, yeah. <laughs> Everyone loves a good BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> oh, man, I can, I can waste hours and hours. There. Oh, I do waste hours and hours there. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned also that um, you use stable isotopes to study benthic foraminifera yes and i have to stop you right there because so we haven't met for a long time but let me share with you a little bit of my career mm -hmm. i did already um but let me go into that i did my master's and undergrad in the middle of precambrian Craton in brazil <laughs> okay always focused on paleozoic rocks and then i went over to australia and I did my PhD on another Creighton, mm -hmm. but this time Archean. So, you know, whenever I talk about life, I mostly mean indirect evidence for bacteria. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe an enrichment in, uh, in cobalt or something. <laughs> so excuse my question, but what the heck is a benthic foraminifer? No, that's okay. It's a good question. Um, so benthic foraminifer is um, a single-celled organism that lives in the ocean. Um, and you can see the larger ones, they're not microscopic, um, but they do just look like grains of sand. <laughs> so it's nothing terribly exciting. Uh, but with a microscope, you can see the, the layers that compose their shells. And, and their shells are mostly made of calcium carbonate and magnesium, um, which is why we can study them and date them, because they're preserved in the rock record. Um, and under the microscope, they also can even look like little pieces of popcorn. I don't know. I think they're really cool, but, you know, it is just <laughs> sand at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, and, and benthic does mean bottom dwelling. So um, it lives mostly in the sediment or on the surface as opposed to a planktic foraminifer, which 
um, lives in the water column or closer to the surface. Um, and, and benthic foraminifers are, are best known for their roles in reconstructing um, geologic timescales since they have been around for, for millions of years. Um, and that means that they're just wonderful paleoclimate indicators. And that's really cool. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, uh, that a ben that a benthic means that they're in the bottom, right? Yes, benthic means bottom. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. They're neat. And I, I'm right. sure that your listeners could probably even look up a picture um, because the, the the variety that I studied in undergrad is called Homotrema rubrum. And they're most famous for their color. They're bright pink. And they're responsible for uh, making the sands in Bermuda pink, which is which is what Bermuda is famous for, the pink sands. And those are because of um, benthic foraminifers. Wow, that's really cool. I'm definitely going to look it up. Yeah, they're really neat. <laughs> so you study this foraminifer in Bermuda, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, how does the Bermuda Triangle affects the fractionation of the isotopes. <laughs> Are you able to just explain the inconsistency in the data based on that? You know, you know. I mean, that that would be kind of nice, you know. Look, my data proves my point exactly, except in this particular behavior that doesn't fit the model. But that's just because, you know, of the island from Lost. <laughs> Shoot, you know, I should have used that for my defense if I was stumped, because that would have been a great way to frame it. But, you know, I didn't I didn't find anything too weird. Mostly I was just looking at oxygen and carbon, so they weren't, um, I don't know, that strange. <laughs> oh, that's good. That I have I have I had the the exact opposite experience during my PhD where at the beginning everything was going wrong. <laughs> oh, but no. hey, Still got a title out of it, so... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> um, so, given both of our involvements in Nice Chats and, and also other podcasts from the Geology Podcast Network, mm -hmm. I can assume that you're also passionate about communication in geosciences, right? For sure, yeah, 100%. Um, why do you think that this, you know, communication in the geosciences is such a crucial part of our work as geoscientists. And, and before you answer, I would like to say that when I say geoscientist, I do not only mean academics, because every geologist or geologist student is a geoscientist, mm -hmm. because um, our job, regardless of your position, pretty much involves research. Yeah. You know, from an exploration a geologist that is looking for a deposit to, you know, assessing underground risk of a construction site or even an underground mine. We all need to do science in our day-to-day -day jobs. So why do you think it's important to communicate as well as just, you know, produce data and research? Um, well, I, th I think most importantly, it's, it's, it's vital to be able to share with each other what we do on a regular basis. Because I think to a, to an outsider who is not um, a student of geology or a professional, it can be a really abstract concept. Oh, what do you do? You know, do you just sit around licking rocks all day? And <laughs> and and <laughs> and I think it 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 is more accessible of a field than people may realize. And to be able to share what we do to not only fellow geologists, but to just the general population is, is such an important part of science because 
it's not just about what we find and and the things that we're interested in. it's it's about sharing that knowledge with everyone else so that that we continue to grow as as scientists and as as um the field of geology and then all together in the end yeah i couldn't have put it better myself So for our next segment, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions which are a bit more personal, designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listeners. And they also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geosciences research fields. Uh, my first question is, how did you first decide to become a geologist? <laughs> Um, I was actually dead set against becoming a geologist because my parents are both geologists and they oh, used really? to, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, they used to, you know, we'd do our road trips and, and, um, vacations and they'd always be stopping the car and like making us get out and walk around and pointing at the rocks. And I just thought it was so obnoxious as a kid. So I was like, I am not becoming a geologist. That, that stuff is boring. Um, <laughs> and then, um, I, I wanted to study the ocean so badly and, and what I became most interested in was um, the concepts of geology in the ocean. So um, it sort of pushed me in that direction, but I'm, I'm really happy that this is, this is where I ended up. Yeah, it's very amazing to me um, how starting to study geology, this whole other world that I had never seen before just suddenly appears um, in front of my eyes. You know, I even wrote about it in a recent post for a traveling geologist that, you know, you, you, you start to train yourself to seeing and noticing these geological features. Yeah. And once you, you know, once you start seeing them, you can't unsee it anymore. And that's probably why your parents were stopping you all along the way, because, yeah. you know, they spot these magnificent things that other people just don't notice. Well, they love it now because now I'll do it with them and we can annoy the rest of our family together. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what are some of the specifics of the research that you're conducting at present? Um, so I'm, I'm in between school at the moment, but one of the projects that I've been working on um, for a while now uh, with the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and the Invertebrate Geology or Invertebrate Zoology Department um, is, a, is a project that tracks biodiversity via um, computer simulations. And, and what we do is uh, deploy these, they look like stacks of square plates, and, and we drill mm -hmm. them into reefs around the world. And then when you take them out, um, three, five, ten years down the road, they've accumulated organic material, which you can then kind of, um, you'll document through, through photographics. And then um, you'll manually go through and take notes and um, count what is on each slide front and back and then you scrape it all off into a blender and you essentially make a biological smoothie which you can then um, take samples of and and uh, DNA barcoding um, will allow you to analyze what's on it um, at a very detailed level um, but my job mostly entails using these photographs and, and loading them into this um, global platform called CoralNet. Um, and you can go through 
and um, plot points on the photographs and then name every organism that, that lies underneath a point. And at the end, you come out with this picture of biodiversity um, and, and that's shared with other institutes all over the world. So essentially, we're trying to figure out how can you map biodiversity um, in a more um, accessible way and, and be able to share it with other scientists because DNA barcoding is expensive. It takes a lot of time and it, it's not as easily understood by, by the general public. So using photographic analysis becomes a, a much um, more accessible way to do that. Uh, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geology? Well, as you mentioned, I do play music. I, I'm a fiddler, so I love playing Scottish and Irish folk music. I do seek out pubs and folks that will sit around for five or more hours playing old music, and that's what I love to do. <laughs> but otherwise, I will I just love being outside, skiing, hiking, swimming, whatever the season allows you to do. <laughs> yeah, as we are a few episodes into nice chats, I start to notice that uh, that's a common trait in geologists. Huh. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm the only one that likes to stay home in the couch watching Netflix and not really go outside. <laughs> I also like to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michaela, thank you so much for, um, for our little chat today. Uh, let me tell you, you did a great job. <laughs> uh, you drove home my point that you don't need to be a doctor to be an expert on something. You did an amazing job of sharing you know, your research area with, with our listeners and myself today. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Yeah, it was great. Wow, what a great chat we had with Michaela. Please check out the show notes on ways to contact her and find out more about her research. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network, and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the next episode of Nice Chats will be out in two weeks, and we will learn about paleomagnetism with a dynamic duo of paleomags. Can I expect to see you then? Of course I can. Whenever I talk about life, I mostly mean indirect evidence for bacteria. What happened? Oh my god. What was Oh my god. The frame fell and just smashed on the ground. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Man, out of nowhere. My god. So so dangerous. Sorry. I'll keep I'll pick it back up and and we can keep going cuz it's okay. Okay, so... <clears throat>